uh, kind of generations, the church has kind of wondered what to do uh, with this parable. And uh, some of our finest and greatest thinkers uh, spent a lot of time on it. Uh, there was a great thinker from the 4th century, uh, a guy called Augustine. And when he spoke about the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, he talked about how the fact that we, you and me, we are the guy that gets beaten up and laid by the side of the road. And then Jesus is the Good Samaritan that comes walking down the road. And um, we get picked up, what do we get first? We get some oil, and that's the oil of the Holy Spirit. And we get uh, some wine, which is obviously communion wine, or the blood of Christ. Uh, and that revives us a little bit. But then we get put on uh, the donkey, uh, which of course is uh, the Bible. And uh, the four legs of the donkey are of course the four Gospels. And uh, they're the ways that we get taken along uh, to uh, the hospital. Remember, we get to, uh, to a hotel, which is of course the church. And uh, the three gifts, uh, the three coins, anyway, you you can see where he's going with this? Uh, The idea is called allegorization. Every single point of the parable has some deep and hidden spiritual meaning. And he was really quite clever putting it together like that. It kind of looks nice and he was a great thinker. So who are we to disagree, right? Well, not that long later, uh, actually a couple of hundred, well, maybe even a thousand years later, Luther uh, was arguing something very similar. And uh, Luther actually was the guy uh, who pinned his kind of, um, uh, nailed his colours to the mast by saying and challenging the Roman Catholic Church of the time, uh, which was teaching all sorts of strange things that we could be saved by what we do. If we can just be good enough, if we can just have communion enough times, uh, if we can just um, pay enough money to the church, we can have our sins forgiven. And that Luther uh, did a fantastic job of helping us to recover again that actually we come to know God not because of what we've done that's good about ourselves, but because of God's love and mercy to us. And so we're saved by faith alone, not by our works. So he really struggled when he came to the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because it seems to be saying you need to be a really good person. So he followed Augustine and said, yes, you know, the, um, that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We're the guy that got, kind of got beaten up on the road. And that the donkey uh, is... Uh, basically the church taking us uh, on our way, merry way up to heaven. So he struggled with that. He also struggled with the book of James and said it was a useless book, might as well be made out of straw. <laughs> so, you know, Luther had some fantastic insights, but there are bits of the Bibles that he, he didn't like. And to be honest, within the evangelical tradition of today, the Good Samaritan has a bit of a bad name. And uh, we don't like the parable too much because it seems to be a bit uh, dodgy. It seems to imply that there are things that you and I could do to get our way up to God. So I've been struggling with it. And uh, I thought I'd kind of talk it through with you, pick your brains. I've got to go, uh, this is kind of the, I, I get to give you the best stuff and any good stuff that's left over after this talk, I'm going to go give it a conference called New Word Alive because they've asked me to speak on this. So I'm really wanting to pick your brains because uh, there'll be some really clever people there. So anything you can do to help me uh, to prepare for that would be great. But, here, we'll give you a bit of a world premiere first. Uh, Because when you speak at a conference, they often give you a little video clip to kind of get the audience ready. So this is a world premiere. I don't think any audience has ever seen this before because it's been prepared for New Word Alive. So here we go. And uh, let's see if you... See if you like this. Yeah. 
with me to Luke chapter 10 and we'll have our own thoughts about this together, shall we? It's on page 1042 uh, in a church Bible. It's worth following along in case I, I stray off course and you need to pull me back to the text. So, let me read to you from verse 25. And listen closely because I'm going to get you in groups asking you some tough questions when this is finished. And uh, no, this won't be in the exam at the end of term. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all, and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three men do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, um, I'm getting into this new, well it's not that new, it's about 18 months old I think. Uh, This new craze on the internet called Twitter. And uh, on Twitter, you're supposed to uh, tell the world what you're thinking in about 200 letters. So let's say three sentences. You're supposed to tell the whole world what you're thinking. For some reason, the whole world is supposed to be interested in what you and I are thinking. Now, if you were posting on Twitter today and were asked to give a summary of what you think the point 
of the parable of the Good Samaritan is, what would you say? In three sentences, how might you seek to summarise Jesus' point in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Okay, told you I'd ask you a tough question. And uh, the way you're going to answer that, that question is on your rows, uh, you're just going to have a little conversation. If you can't quite converse all the way across the row, uh, just do it in threes. Uh, but you guys on the sides can handle this. How would you summarise it in three sentences? Okay, have a go. Okay, friends, let's, uh, let's talk together again. <coughs> Love to say there's a prize for this. Uh, but the prize for a really helpful answer is uh, I will quote you at New World Alive and maybe it will mean book deals and uh, DVDs for you. So you never know, anything's possible. Um, anyone with some, some wisdom or some insight want to give us their, their three? Yeah, go for it. How Jesus can rescue you in the most dynamic ways. That's a really good sentence, I like it. Very interesting. Good, good start, thank you. Anyone want to offer a different one? Yep. Oh, well, three said, oh, go on then. A trio. Can you do it in harmonies? <laughs> I'm ready. To get to heaven, you must love God. If you love God, you must pass by. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Give it again, one more time. Yes. Oh, yeah. See, that's quite that's the funkiest one so far. I like it. <laughs> Good. Oh, can you say it again really loudly? Oh, yeah, we could use the mic, couldn't we? Hello? Yeah. To get to heaven, you must love God. And if you love God, do not pass by. Do not pass by, no matter who they are. Oh, yeah, it's kind of rhythmic. It's good. Any other, any other takers? doesn't have to be in harmony or rhythm. Don't, don't feel like that's a new normal. Do you really want me to sing? No. <laughs> Anyone else? But we, we were thinking along the, the Samaritan here, and we thought it was uh, unconditional giving and caring without prejudice. Yes. Good. Unconditional giving and caring without prejudice. We like it. Okay. Any other suggestions? Uh, Jeff? This has got to be the best one. The pastor's going to get it right, isn't he? So. Help people regardless of who they are. Help people regardless of who they are. Involvement with people is always costly, long term. Nice. <laughs> no. <laughs> he said it no. all. Said it all. Good. Any any others? Any other takers? No. Fine. Okay. I'll tell you what. Let's let's dive in and have a look. Okay. I've had my mind changed on this parable as I've read it, and um, I've been reading a book by a really interesting guy called Kenneth Bailey. And uh, Ken Bailey is an expert on the Middle East. He's a Bible teacher uh, who lives in the Middle East and he's been thinking about how the Bible has been taught uh, within the culture it kind of originated from. And uh, one of the things he did that was interesting was he looked at the structure, not just of the parable, but of the things that surround it. Okay? So where does this parable come? It comes in the middle of a conversation, doesn't it? Between an expert in the law and Jesus. And there are basically four questions that happen in this parable. And let's, uh, let's take a look at them together. Oh, actually, that is... It's going to give me the wrong one. Oh. Here we go. Yep. Four questions. 
Okay. The first two. You see this expert in the Lord comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's quite a relevant question, isn't it? We've uh, seen this week how very rich and very famous people have no help when it comes to death, haven't we? Natasha Richardson died this week in a horrible skiing accident. Jade Goody died today, didn't she, of cancer in a very sad but public way. And um, knowing what happens to us beyond this life is really important, isn't it? To everybody, rich and poor, English, American, it doesn't matter who you are, we all need an answer to that question. But the expert in the law asks a strange question, doesn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Many of you have been praying for my mum and I really appreciate it because my mum uh, is going through chemotherapy for cancer at the moment. Now my mum was over, it was Mother's Day, we had a lovely walk in the park uh, in the sunshine and uh, imagine I said to my mum, Mum, you know, we've all got to kind of face the end, haven't we? Got to get ready for, for death. I'd like to talk to you about your will and uh, what's it going to take? You know, what must I do to inherit all that kind of, you know, equity you've got in the house and the old piano I used to play? What do I have to do to inherit that? How do you think my mum would feel if I asked her a question like that? What must I do to inherit from you? See, inheritance doesn't work like that, does it? It's not something that you earn. It's not kind of, uh, you know, someone you say, where there's a will, there's a way, isn't there? So, uh, you'll always find a way to get in the will. That seems to be the idea. But it doesn't work like that, does it? An inheritance is a gift. Someone gives it to you because they want to, not because you've kind of earned it or you've kind of paid them back enough for it. So, it's a strange question. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Well, actually, eternal life is a gift from God. So, it's a strange question to begin with. He's got a kind of idea in his back of his head. Now, Jesus refuses to answer the question. Have a look. Have a look with me. How does Jesus answer the question? Uh, verse 25, Teacher, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers with a question. Brilliant. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Now, this guy's an expert in the law, so it's kind of a, you know, it's going to be an easy question for him. He says... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. He's summarising the Old Testament law. Strangely, this expert in the law is summarising the Old Testament in the same way that Jesus summarises the Old Testament. If you look in Matthew's Gospel, when someone comes up to Jesus and Jesus says, uh, and they say, you know, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and... Love your neighbour as yourself. So Jesus and this guy have the same view on the Old Testament. Now, some people think Jesus nicked the answer from this guy. Other people think that this guy uh, had actually heard Jesus say that elsewhere. And others think that actually this was quite a common way of summarising the Old Testament law. A lot of the Jewish rabbis thought the same. These were the two greatest commandments. doesn't really matter. We know that Jesus thinks they're the greatest commandments. So it could have ended there. Jesus hasn't actually given him any answers. What does he say? He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, so we get a little bit of structure there. Okay, two questions. One question from the expert in the law. One question back from Jesus, refusing to answer the question. And then he says, yeah, go do this and you will live. Now the expert in the law might feel 
a bit cheated. Because he's been trying to trap Jesus, trying to catch him out, and Jesus hasn't given anything away. So he has another go, he asks another question. Look what he says. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked another question. And who is my neighbour? Okay? Who is my neighbour? I get this bit. I get loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul and strength. I get that. But when it comes to loving my neighbour, who, who do I need to love? What are the limits that I need to, of people I need to love? Because that's going to be hard. I can't really love everybody. There's got to be some people that are out, aren't there? Some people are in, some people are out. It's a bit like Christmas card lists. Yeah? Quite a painful thing, actually, Christmas cards. It's who's in this year? I mean, stamps are going up, aren't they? And uh, who didn't send us one last year? Who's in and who's out? Even worse for me, because I don't really do Christmas cards, is, is Facebook. You know, on Facebook, you can, you can go and have loads of friends. I'm a Facebook junkie in that um, I say yes to anybody who asks me to be their friend. Okay? So it's a computer thing and you can ask someone to be your friend and once they're your friend, every time I tell people my thoughts on the world, they listen, or supposedly they're listening. And they know where my birthday is and they can look at pictures I put up there. I will say yes to anybody. I've never met these people before. I never know who they are. I just say, yeah, that's great. And the other day, I was on 999 friends, right? And I made it to 1,000 and that was an important day. And then I looked the next day and I was back to 999. <laughs> Do you know what that means? Someone cut me. Someone chucked me out. And, and I wanted to kind of do a check. It's really hard to know who it was. If it was you, confess and <laughs> we can talk. But they cut me. And then I read on, in, on the internet that in America, because I've got some friends that are in America, in America, Burger King were doing a deal that you could sell your friends to Burger King. And if you gave them five of your friends on the internet, they gave you a whopper. So someone valued, you know, an all-beef patty with cheese and gherkins and special sauces and jalapeno peppers, uh, all in a kind of lovely bun with kind of uh, sesame seeds. Someone valued that burger more than my Facebook friendship. It was painful. I was out. Now this guy here, the expert in the law, is trying to do a similar thing. Who do I need to love in order to get to heaven? Who do I, who's in and who's out? And that's when Jesus tells his parable, doesn't he? So, the point of the parable is answering this question, who do you need to love? Does that make sense? Okay, let's have a look. See what, what, uh, what would have happened. Let's walk through it a little bit more. So in reply to that question, Jesus refuses to answer the question but sends him in a story instead. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And actually it was a long way. It was a few thousand feet down and it was quite a long, narrow path down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was sometimes known as the Blood Road. It was such a dangerous road. It would be a bit like some dodgy parts of London or Brooklyn in, in, uh, in, in um, New York or somewhere. Somewhere you know that bad things are going to happen. Okay? This was the road the man's going. So everyone knows, even as Jesus starts the conversation, what's probably going to happen to this man. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road 
And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, it's always troubled people why the priest would walk by. Some people say, well, it's because he was kind of on his way to the temple, and if he went to the temple, then he couldn't touch this guy because he would be ceremonially unclean. But remember, he was going down the same way, so Jerusalem was behind him, and Jericho was ahead of him, because a lot of priests actually lived in Jericho. It's quite a kind of nice place to live. So he would have been going away from the temple. He wasn't going to do his religious service. But still, some other people say, actually, that's still, if he'd have touched a dead guy, that still would have been a trouble for him and would have made him unclean. So maybe that's why he didn't stop. Other people think, actually, this guy was likely to have been on a donkey. Okay, so he wouldn't have just been kind of ambling down. He'd have been, he's a relatively rich guy in the culture. So he was on a donkey, kind of travelling entourage away from Jerusalem. But he doesn't stop. Doesn't stop, just walks on by. And I guess... I mean, the interesting thing is here, in, even in Jesus' day, there were some people that didn't respect the clergy. And people have said, oh, typical. That's all you get out of priests. Loads of old talk about God, but no action. And so the crowd would have been wondering who the second guy coming down the track would be. But at verse 32, So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levite... He's slightly less high in the rankings in the, um, the Jewish temple system, uh, but still a holy man, a devout man, an expert in the law. He would have known what the Bible had to say about helping strangers and being hospitable, and yet he still walks away too. Some people think he actually could have seen, he's likely to have seen the priest and saw what the priest did and therefore just followed suit. don't know. Now, just in our stories, you know, we tell stories about the Englishman, the Irishman and the Scotsman. And, you know, the, the, the kind of butt of the joke is always going to be the third guy, isn't it? However it ends, the third guy is either the one that does it all wrong or does it all right. Yeah? You know the one? Uh, there's the Englishman, Irishman and the Scotsman and, the, and uh, they're in front of a firing squad. Remember this one? And um, uh, the, the Englishman stands up there and just as they're about to, to fire at him, he shouts, Flood! And uh, all the guys uh, that are on the firing squad kind of duck and run for cover and uh, he manages to untie himself and run away. Uh, and then the Irishman comes up and, uh, he's, and he's about to fire at him and he says, Hurricane! And uh, they, they go, oh no, all the people looking for the Hurricane and they run away. And then the, who's the last one? The Scotsman? What is, oh, it's the Welshman, I don't mind who it is. You, you take your pick, whoever you want your hero to be. What does he say? What does he shout? Fire! Fire and he gets shot. So it's always the third guy, is it? The third guy always gets it wrong or he's the hero that kind of gets it right. Are you with me? Same, same deal in a lot of the parables and a lot of the stories of Jesus' day. So who's everybody expecting the third guy to be? We've had two members of the clergy so far, haven't we? High-ranking, high, uh, kind of priest guy, high-ranking, clever Levite. The third guy is going to be an ordinary Jewish guy, isn't he? Well, Jesus kind of blows them away because he says in verse 33, but a Samaritan as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, the idea of a good Samaritan in Jesus' day was what many people call an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms, a bit like kind of black light. Okay? 
can't get black light, it's impossible, it's a contradiction in terms. Good Samaritan is also an oxymoron as far as most people are concerned. The only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan, I can imagine many of Jesus' hearers thinking. And yet this Samaritan models love and compassion and kindness to a stranger walking down a hill. And uh, many people think that uh, the Samaritan was putting his life at risk, actually, by taking this man and taking him to a Jewish town, going into a, um, a, a, a kind of hotel, and, and there's a kind of beaten up man, and taking him in. Some people would have thought it was a bit like um, cowboy. You know, imagine a cowboy had an arrow sticking out of him, and an Indian, a red Indian, puts him on a horse and takes him back to the settlement. That red Indian, before they even got a chance to explain what was going on, probably get shot, wouldn't he? The Samaritan's kind of doing the same thing, isn't he? He's going into enemy territory, offering help, but putting his own life at risk. Now, remember I said that the first structure was this. Two questions and then an answer. Uh, the guy asked the question, who is my neighbour? How does Jesus reply? Well, he replies with another question. Have a look. He says this, which of these three men do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So the guy had said, who is my neighbour? Jesus answers, who was a neighbour? He asks the question. Now what's the difference between those two questions? Why is it a significant difference? First question is, who is my neighbour? Jesus answers with a question, who was his neighbour? What's the difference between those two questions? That's a non-rhetorical question. Feel free to have a, have a go. You were kind of looking worried and vacant for a minute. What's the difference between those two questions? The second, the second question gets thinking about action. Yeah. The answer. Yes. The first question is actually asking for a per- He actually wants a person to be identified as a neighbour yeah. And Jesus is saying it's actually the action that identifies who your neighbour is. Good. We're nearly there. I think that's, that's really helpful. Anyone want to add to that? Or, um... Yeah? Yeah, but it seems it's kind of looking at it the other way around. But yeah. Saying who was a neighbour to... In other words, it's the Samaritan who acted in a neighbourly way by helping... So it's not it's the person who's helping who's being the neighbour. Yes. It's not the person who's being helped. Yes, the first one's very passive, isn't it? The first one is, you know, where can I draw a line? You know, who who do I need to love? Who's in? Do I need to love my family? Okay, it needs to be a bit bigger than my family. Maybe it's my tribe. Uh, maybe it's my nation. But Jesus is actually saying, no, it's the other way around. You should be looking for people that you're able to be a neighbour to. So one asks, who must I love? in order to get in. The other kind of answer is, who can I love? Where are the opportunities for me to show love? So one is drawing a line, and the other one actually says, there are no lines. Nobody gets cut out of this. God's love is for everybody. Now, again, the context is really important, because Jesus again says this same thing, go and do likewise. So, remember the first time? What must I do? What, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law say? Love the Lord your God, love the Lord, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. Do this and you will live. Second time, who is my neighbour? I'll tell you a story about what a neighbour looks like and I want you to be like that. This is why Luther had a problem with this story, isn't it? It sounds like he's saying, you need to love like this person in order to get to heaven. Doesn't it? 
You need to love God perfectly and you need to love your neighbour perfectly. So what do we do with that? Because none of us is going to be able to love like that neighbour. None of us is going to be able to love like that Samaritan. So what are we supposed to do? Well, you read the wider Bible and I guess in one sense the law which is being summarised here is pointing us to our failure, isn't it? I have failed to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul and mind and I've failed to love my neighbour as myself. And if I'm not sure about that, have I loved the same quality as the Good Samaritan? There's a very similar story, happens in Luke 18. Do you remember Jesus meets the, um, uh, the rich young ruler? Remember him? The rich young ruler asks exactly the same question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he mentions five of them, do you remember? Uh, you know, honour your father and mother, uh, don't bear false testimony, all the ones to do with people, he mentions. And then the guy says, hey, I've done that, I'm okay. And then he says, go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. And the guy says, ooh, I can't do that. And he walks away from Jesus. Why? Because he didn't love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul and mind. He loved money more. So in that instance, I guess Jesus was showing him, here's the moral standard, you've fallen short of it, you need me. You need mercy, you need grace, you can't get to heaven by being good. I think probably Jesus is doing the same thing here with the parable of the Good Samaritan. He's saying, here is the moral standard, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, love your neighbour as yourself. If you can do that, you're sorted. If you can't, like the rest of us, you need Jesus. Now, the problem is, if you take that to be the only, only way we're supposed to understand this parable, it sounds like a real cop-out, doesn't it? It means, oh yeah, I can't love like the Good Samaritan, I just need to ask God for his mercy, then I'll be okay. Now that would be true if the law of God was just like a kind of hundred foot fence, and God said to you, guys, I want you to jump over that hundred foot fence, and uh, you say, I can't, and God says, oh yeah, that's fine then, I'll forgive you and you'll be okay. If it was just a kind of random standard that God just kind of made up to show that we'd failed, then that would be the end of this parable. But we believe the law of God actually tells us the character of God, don't we? God's laws are perfect, they're good, they're, they show us what God is really like, what he really requires of us. That's why in the Old Testament, you read a psalm like Psalm 19, it says, God, your law is amazing. You know, it, it gives me wisdom for knowing how to live. It's perfect. It gives me everything I need. So people used to delight in the law because it was so just and real, compassionate, true. So this parable is supposed to show us that we've fallen short of God's standards, but it is also supposed to show us, once we've received mercy from God, the kind of love that God wants us to show to our world. Does that make sense? So it's not a way that you can earn your way to heaven because no one can do that. No one can love God perfectly. No one can love your neighbour perfectly. But once you've received grace from God, now we need to show that kind of love. And here's the danger, I think. Because there was this amazingly religious guy who knew his Old Testament really well, this priest, and yet he doesn't show God's compassion. And therefore the question mark is whether he really loves God at all. And I think the challenge for us as Christians here is that our Christianity becomes only about right doctrine, 
You know, someone once said to me that they, a lot of people think that when it comes to the day of judgment, uh, it's basically going to be a test of doctrine. Okay, there's a kind of little doctrinal statement to sign uh, just outside wherever the entrance to heaven or the new earth and the new heaven is going to be, in. and it'll be a question like the virgin birth. Agree, uh, agree strongly, disagree, disagree strongly. And if you t- agree strongly, then you're in because it's all about this. It's just about knowing the right kind of stuff. But the Bible says actually God is looking for his character, his compassion to be worked out in our lives. Do you remember another way that the, um, the end times are talked about? Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? Judgment in the parable of the sheep and goats is not about whether you sung enough songs on a Sunday, whether you knew your Bible, whether you could actually recite the books of the Bible in the right order, uh, whether you'd read Calvin's Institutes, whether you signed up for the Baptist Union doctrinal statement. No. He says, I was naked, I was hungry, I was thirsty. You did nothing. Depart from me to eternal damnation. So the test of whether we're really in the faith, whether we really have asked God for his mercy to fill us, asked for forgiveness because of what Jesus has done on the cross, isn't that we're in church, but actually that we're serving out in the world, isn't it? And that's a really high standard and we need God's love, God's help to be able to do that. Here's what I want you to do. And um, then we'll kind of sing a last song and pray and, and kind of go home. I want you to look one last time through that parable and I want you to look at what love looked like according to the Good Samaritan. What did love look like? In what practical ways did the Good Samaritan show love? And then we'll ask for God's help to show that love this week. Practical ways that the Good Samaritan loved because Jesus uses him as our model for love. What was that? He wrapped his head. So it's kind of practical, uh, physical, medical care. Good. Any other ways? Yeah. He did. He sacrificially loved, didn't he? In that he had to walk, the other guy went on the donkey, and it cost him, cost him big time. Yeah. It was holistic, extensive, yeah. It wasn't just kind of, let's throw him a few point, uh, pound coins well, as we walk by. Life. He risked his life. Good, like it. Good. Inclusive. Yes, 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 yes. The strange thing, and you can help me with this, because I haven't majored on this a lot, is it, it seems again to be the wrong way around. You'd expect Jesus to tell this parable about the good Jew that helped the Samaritan. That would have still kind of carried the idea that, that love crosses boundaries. But Jesus is saying, actually, um, it's not, I suppose it's what Mark was saying, isn't it? You demonstrate that you are a neighbour by what you do. It isn't your race that makes the difference. It isn't your heritage. It is what you do. That's the kind of defining feature of what uh, shows you to be a neighbour or not. And by what you receive. Uh-huh. Allowing somebody to be a neighbour to you. Yes, yes, interesting. Okay. Good. Any other ways you think he loved? He did, he did, he had a lot, a lot at risk. Here are some words that uh, a guy called Tim Keller, there's a fantastic book he's written called uh, Ministries of Mercy, and uh, I recommend it to you. Uh, here are different ways that he provided help. 
advocacy. He, he spoke up for him. He, he talked when the other guy couldn't, when he went to the hotel. Uh, transport, shelter, friendship, nourishment, follow-up visit, medical treatment, economic provision, protection. Now, what's interesting here, isn't it, that, that um, uh, you know, if this was a perfect parable, you'd expect Jesus to say, and he also shared the gospel with him once he got into the hotel. Um, but he didn't. And, and we need to be careful, I guess. I mean, this, we're not saying, hear me, I hope you heard, the bulk of what we're saying is, this is a high standard of love that all of us fall short of, so we need the gospel. We need to re- receive grace from God. But, this isn't a random illustration just to show how bad we are. It's an illustration of God's kind of loving, if you like. And it isn't enough. Even 1 John picks it up. It's not enough just to say to people, hey, great, nice to see you, you need the gospel, never mind about your social conditions. God is a God that cares holistically for the whole person. We are body, mind and soul. And all those things need care and, and, and um, uh, provision for in this life. And so medical missionaries that go out and uh, people that work amongst the homeless, uh, people that are involved in politics and government and media, trying to bring some of God's compassion into our world are part of God's mission. Okay? But none of those things in themselves are enough. It's got to be coupled at some point with the gospel. But the gospel on its own is not enough. Jesus did not come just as a preacher, did he? He went around doing good healing the sick, feeding the hungry. And if we're going to be Jesus-like Christians, little Jesuses as they were called, our love needs to be holistic too, doesn't it? It needs to care for body, mind and soul, the whole person. And I guess the challenge, the challenge to me in Tim Keller's book is, what does that mean for a church? What does it mean for a church? In what ways do we actually care for the people around us? We've just started a big initiative in our Evangelical Alliance that says, If your church ceased to exist in your community, would anyone notice, apart from the fact there's more parking on a Sunday morning? If we weren't here, would anyone notice or care? Because we're supposed to be a light in a dark place. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be loving in the way that God loved us. I want you to spend a moment, maybe, in reflection. And uh, there might be something I've said that's completely out of order and I want you to take me aside at the end and, and tell me why that is. But if there's something of God in what I've said tonight, I'd like you to ask God, God, what should loving look like for me? What should it look like tomorrow as I go to work? What should it look like tomorrow as I'm at school? What should it look like if I'm uh, at home tomorrow in my community? What should it look like for me? How can I love like this good Samaritan love? How can I receive your grace and mercy for a needy and lost world? What would that look like? And uh, while you're thinking and praying and reflecting, uh, the band are going to sing us a song and, uh, and then I'll pray and then we'll all sing this song together. Okay, so just a moment's reflection on what God might be saying to us.